Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim, and we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Indeed. Although not so much debunking this week or last week, for that matter. Just bunking. Just bunking. Or taking a debunking break. Is that is that how that works? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that we're, we're just not doing that section. We're doing the moita. We're doing the moita. We're focusing on the moita. And there's there's not as much to debunk with this. Although there there is a little, but the debunking kind of happens within the, the case. Um, it's more so debunking why the police were called. <laughs> the police were summoned. The police were summoned. <laughs> I don't know why that... Like, it's. I read that all the time. I see that all the time. I'm not sure why suddenly it became as funny as it did. But it just seems so obvious that it doesn't need to be pointed out that many times. I think that's why. Police were summoned. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, you should mm, pause. Yeah. Go back. Uh, yeah, this is part two of uh, our coverage on the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, also known as the Cleveland Torso Killer. So... If you have not listened to part one, you might want to, because this isn't going to make any sense. Unless like you want to go for a fun ride and try to figure it out. Yeah, that's, I'm going to say a lot of names and you're going to be like, who? But, but why? But what? But who? who? But what? Uh, I do really quickly want to say we do talk for a little bit about an alleged suicide. Uh, and so if that's something that could be a little triggering, You'll be able to tell when it's coming up. I would skip ahead a couple minutes, but uh, yes, we will be we will be mentioning that in this episode. So, fair warning. Uh, I will give you a little recap. If you know it's been a couple weeks since you've listened, um, a serial killer was tormenting the city of Cleveland starting in 1934. We are now up to 1938. Police are no closer to solving the case than they were on day one. Elliot Ness, founder of The Untouchables and one of the main detectives responsible for bringing down one Al Capone, has been brought in but so far outside of cleaning up some corrupt members in the police force and city leadership, not really been successful at stopping the butcher. Uh, does that catch us up? Anything you want to throw in there? Um, no, that, that's, that's, that's pretty, that's a good synopsis. I would say You're that's welcome. good and that the police were summoned as well. <laughs> The police were summoned. <laughs> Many a time. Uh, Many a times. I think uh, it was also maybe the one thing to throw in is that there were a lot of marginalized people that were impacted. Oh, yeah. We'll be. Well, trust me. That's still going to continue to get touched All on. All right. <laughs> so just to remind. Listeners. Just to remind you. Yeah. The, the, the Mad Butcher's victims have primarily been the poor uh, sex workers, um, alcoholics, uh, people who lived in, in the Kingsbury run, which was essentially a, um, I hate to say like a, a skid row kind of area, but really mm. it was. Um, yeah. so where we kind of left off, detectives are trying to track any lead, any lead, but nothing is happening. And the public is is frustrated with the lack of progress. Most of them aren't super worried this is going to happen to them, but they're frustrated that there's been no results. Now, the next victim wouldn't be found until the following year, on April 8th of 1938, when a young worker saw what he thought was a dead fish in a storm drain. Oh. I think you know 
what we're going to say. Was it the dead fish, Gabby? It was human remains. Yeah. It was half of a woman's leg cut off below the knee and above the ankle, and blonde hairs were stuck to it. Ooh. The coroner I, immediately identified her as, as being a victim of the butcher. In fact, he even said, quote, crude knife marks indicate the slayer was in a hurry. The coroner also said that she had been killed sometime over the last few days. So this was a recent kill. This is where some behind-the-scenes drama starts to pop up. Uh-oh. Well, because Elliot Nass, he's nervous. People are panicking. <clears throat> so he had this other man, uh, Robert Chamberlain, who was working behind the scenes with Ness, and Ness wanted Chamberlain to give his opinion. Chamberlain said, well, it's possible this leg belonged to a victim who had already been discovered but was missing the limbs, so one of the previous victims. Okay. And then he said, Uh-oh. <laughs> quote, I mean, no reflection on the coroner, but the time of death is very important. And I thought Dr. Gerber wouldn't mind other experts corroborating his findings. That's sassy. <laughs> I was going to say it's a little sassy. It's exactly what I wrote. <laughs> sassy. Sassy. Uh, Dr. Gerber did mind. Uh-oh. <laughs> Another expert coming in. Um. And to his defense of this, like, the last victim was someone who had died, like, 10 months prior. Also a male. <laughs> the last so victim was a different. male. So this is implying not only um, that the coroner can't identify the gender of the victim, but that he could mistake a leg that had been dead for a few days for one that had been dead for like a year. Very different. Those are very different things. So this pathologist from Western Reserve University came to look at the leg. And Dr. Gerber was like, nope, you're not coming in here. And ab actually like refused to let him in. Uh-oh. Um, all this drama, though, it, it kind of became obsolete because on May 2nd, they'd find two burlap sacks containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of the legs of the woman that was found on April 8th. Oh no. In fact, they found that like the foot <clears throat> they found fit into the leg piece, like a really messed up puzzle. Oh, did they actually try to so, fit it together? I mean, that's how you can tell. I guess that's true. <laughs> you just, I just, the visual of that is like, it sounds like <laughs> floppy. Uh, I mean, if rigor mortis is set in, it's not floppy. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if you wanted a visual, there well, it's you also go. Pieces. So it's more like, uh, I don't know, Lincoln logs. I <laughs> so if you didn't want a visual, there uh, you go. Too, now you too have late. it. <laughs> then why are you even listening to us? Yeah. You know what we're like. <laughs> On brand. Uh, the, the victim had morphine in her liver and lungs as well, but they couldn't really tell if this was because the killer had drugged her or if he had specifically targeted a drug addict. Mm. It was determined she'd given birth multiple times, and she, like many of the other victims, was never identified. Sad. It was also noted that, like Dr. Gerber observed this on the state of the leg piece, the cuts on this body seemed rushed and frantic. Oh. The head had not been cleanly sliced off, but it was almost, for lack of a better word, hacked off. Oh, no. 
So things aren't looking great for Elliot Ness. Uh, you still don't have any suspects, credible leads. They're getting dozens of letters and calls coming in each day. Ness would say to the news, one of the local papers, this killer has great cunning. He certainly doesn't leave many, if any, clues. About all we have to go on is that one of the victims was a pervert and another was a prostitute. This man seems to specialize in the sort of people nobody is likely to miss. I mean, that's accurate. It's entirely accurate. No, and and I mean, like, again, despite... Your like quote unquote respectable citizens not really fearing being a victim. This story was being told all the way overseas uh, because it was so sensational and so messed up. In fact, Germany, which think about what year we're currently in. Yes, we talked about this. Oh no, this is something different. Oh, just kidding. This is 1938 now. Okay. What's happening in Germany in 1938? World War II. Uh, And Nazis. Yeah, lots of Nazis. Yeah. The Nazi newspapers were running this story uh, essentially to make fun of the United States. Oh, jeez. Yeah, no. That's how bad it is. That's how messed up this was. So if the Nazis are making fun of it. Yeah. That's like you thinking a case is really, like, bothersome. I'm not sure how to take that. (laughs) No, just like if you're really affected by like crime in any kind of capacity, like it says something. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's all I mean by that. I'm not comparing you to a Nazi. I was going to say, I took it a little differently, so I'm glad you clarified. No, no, no. I wasn't wasn't comparing you to a Nazi at all. (laughs) Never. Would never do that. No. Just like the fact that it's got to be bad. If that's what's happening, it's got to be really bad. Well, and again, it's sensational. Like, you think about, you know, when you think about a Ripper killer, Mm -hmm. what's the first Ripper killer that comes to your mind? Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. And how that changed how we looked at killers, that changed how we looked at a lot of journalism. Mm -hmm. This is essentially the same type of thing, but has been going on for longer. That's true. Yeah. And and oh God, I know I said this a ton in the last episode, but it, it's part of why I keep coming back to why is this not case more well known today? It's a great question because it's so messed up. Yeah. Anyway, on August 16th of 1938, two bodies were found within view of Elliot Ness's window. Wow. That's ballsy. That is ballsy. Uh, Two or three men, the records I found, I I saw references to both. They were looking through a junk heap in hopes of finding something they could scavenge. And they found a bundle with a horrible stench. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. A bundle that contained the remains of a small woman dead for four to six months. Ooh. Yeah. Police were summoned. The fact that they were just, like, down the street made it pretty easy. As they searched through the site, they found a torso thighs wrapped in butcher's paper nine pieces total including the head little digging revealed the arms and uh legs as well the victim was a woman 30 to 40 years old and appeared to have been preserved or even have been kept in a refrigerator oh yeah which is super odd and gross (laughs) police continued to dig through the area 
which was not secure at all, <laughs> like not secure at all. There was just like humans everywhere. And someone, not a policeman, <laughs> spotted a second body. Oh, no. Almost completely rotting. An officer ran over to collect the pieces, and this following is, is some quotes from that. Found the pelvis bones, ribs, and vertebrae of a human being lying on the ground next to a can. He went to place the bones inside the can so they would stay together, but in the can, found a human skull. Oh, surprise! The second victim was male, 30 to 40, had been dead seven to nine months, and neither victim to this day has ever been identified. Dang. This is a lot of unidentified people. There's two verified, and then our third is is Rose, who we unofficially have identified, but we don't know for sure. So of all of the butcher's victims, only two for sure have ever been positively identified. That is wild. Yeah. Uh, Detective Peter Marylou, we talked about him a little bit in the last one. He was the bulldog. Oh, yeah. He remarked, quote, he's changing his technique. Why? I don't know. But for the first time since the two bodies were found in September 1935, he has left two victims together. And again, changing his method, he left heads of these two. That's an interesting right. point. Yeah. Because before he would remove the heads. Yeah. Or he'd remove them and he'd, but but, and he'd take them. It. They wouldn't yeah. be like the, the two that were found, the two men found together um, were the two where the heads were placed nearby. Got it. What was even more interesting, though, so the woman's body that they thought maybe had been refrigerated hadn't been refrigerated. It had been embalmed. Oh, that's a lot of work. Press save on that piece of information. That's going to come into play later. All right. This was such a public F you. (laughs) Like, honestly. Yeah. Um. Ness is really feeling the pressure, not just from from citizens, but from politicians. On August 18th of 1938, two days after the two latest victims were found at approximately 1240 a.m., Ness and 35 officers raided the hobo jungles in Kingsbury Run. 11 squad cars, two police vans, three fire trucks. Ness and his men gathered up 63 people that were living in the shanty towns and then burned them to the ground. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. As a precaution, they fingerprinted every man they rounded up in case any of them would later become victims of the killer. That would make identifying them so much easier. Not super comforting. No, that's messed up. I thought you were going to say that they took like fingerprints to help identify the killer. No, no. It's like, mm, we're so sorry. We just want to be able to identify you in case you're murdered. So could you just give us your fingerprints, please? Thank you. After burning their homes. Yeah, after burning your home down. Wow. Uh, how'd you think this went over with the public? <laughs> oh, not great. Not Probably great. not great at all. Um, the press, one of the local newspapers said, but the Commercial Hill dwellers are not thanking Mr. Ness for his concern about their remaining unidentified if their heads should be chopped off, nor do they thank him for burning down the village. I, I do love like just the sheer, you feel it, right? You feel it in some of these newspaper articles and some of these quotes. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of sass, a lot of attitude, a lot of, um, no one's holding back. No, a lot of anger. A lot of anger. Yeah. 
And James Bedall's book, In the Wake of the Butcher, which was uh, one of two hugely helpful books that I read that were were, um, great resources, he comments this marked a turning point for Elliot Ness in Cleveland. Because at this point, Killer's been at large for four years. Ness has been in charge of this investigation for two of those years. And in all that time, what do you have to show? You got bodies, burnt down shantytown, that's it. That's not a great look. Yeah, not a great look. One of the other local papers commented, quote, It is well for all of us to keep in mind that, after all, few men live through choice in such squalor as presented by these jungle camps. If such residents are jobless, that also is probably through no fault of their own. Any single man out of work and hungry knows how hard it is to get any form of public relief. And Gabby, if I didn't know when this newspaper was published, I would have thought this was published in 2023. I was just thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. That is also, thank you for being in my brain. But like, (laughs) that's so sad. It's so sad. like... We are how many years later? Almost this is uh, 1938. Like this is like 80 <laughs> years later, yeah. like 90 years later. I can't do math. Like <laughs> it's, it's a, you would think something might have changed in that time. But like even talking about shanty towns, mm-hmm. like. Oh, especially in Seattle. Especially is, here. Yeah. yeah. And like the, the homelessness is so it's just so sad. And, like, you would think it would have been... All this has happened before, and it will happen again. Yeah, it's going to happen again. History repeats itself. Well, even, I mean... You know, looking at a a killer like the Green River Killer, um, and he killed in the 80s, so, uh, you know, 40-something, 40-plus years after the fact. Um, But he targeted marginalized women, he targeted uh, runaways, sex workers. One of his victims was a young woman hitchhiking. Um, he killed across racial lines, uh, which, again, made initially attributing him to some of the kills challenging because there was still this attitude that that didn't happen. And now, again, he didn't mutilate the bodies the same way, but the targets, you know, that's it's it's we see it time and time and time again. The people targeted are the people who society forgets and neglects and um, just don't care about and don't care about. And the killers know that because it's 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 two sided. Right. On the one hand, uh, they're people who won't necessarily be missed because they might already be gone or they might not have anybody in their life. But on the other side of it, it's what made Bundy get so much attention. He wasn't killing marginalized women. He was killing very pretty coets. So people cared. Even if people read this and think, oh, that's so sad, that's awful, whatever, they're also thinking this isn't going to happen to me because I'm not this. So it's it's easy to let some of these crimes go on for a very long time because even though you're like, oh, that's awful, not going to happen to me. And if it doesn't affect me or couldn't happen to me, eh, how much do I actually care? Also, there's not as much like fear instilled in people it's different fear yeah it's a different fear today i think um but uh no it's 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 really it was interesting looking at this case because there were so many things there were so many parallels to today 
in um, uh, the treatment of of the people and and I don't know again, especially living in Seattle and working in Pioneer Square. There's just uh, yeah, I don't know. It 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 hits differently. Yeah, it's rough. The police were summoned. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like that's just the way that you transition now. It's like, yes, police were summoned. <laughs> uh, so it's now, it's late 1938. Not too long after all of the stuff with the shanty towns, a new witness comes forward, a man named Emil Fronick. Great name. Wow. A drifter. He was unemployed, homeless. He would ride the rails. And he reported a rather odd encounter he had in the latter half of 1934. Oh. He was wandering around, knocked on the door of a home there that he hoped he could get some shoes and maybe a meal to eat. A man answered. He was around middle age, light colored hair, going gray at the temples and what uh, would be described as almost colorless eyes. The man led him in and led him to what Emil would describe as some sort of doctor's office. The man brought Emil a meal, which he started eating incredibly quickly and then started to feel sick and dizzy. Oh, no. Now, he was able to get out of the house. He found a boxcar to sleep in. He'd share this story with another man while riding the rails and was told from this other man that he had a similar experience. That he visited that same home, ate, passed out, and woke up with slashes on his body. <gasps> and no. then escaped. Now, detectives would take Emil around to see if he could figure out which home it was, but he wasn't really able to. He kind of got a general area, but uh, couldn't pinpoint necessarily the exact one. But that's interesting. That is interesting. And I just want to point out, I appreciated the sentence, Emil Emil. <laughs> gave Emil Emil. Uh, gave Emil Emil. It might I be Emil, that. too. It's, uh, maybe it's Emil. E-M-I-L. Emil? A meal. Tomato, tomato. I don't know. Um, on December 21st of 1938, a letter arrived addressed to the Cleveland chief of police, Modowitz. You can rest easy now, as I have come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall astound the medical profession, a man with only a D.C. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and diseased twisted bodies? Just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. No one missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I know now the feeling of Pastor, Thoreau, and other pioneers. Right now, I have a volunteer who will prove my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. I have failed but once here. The body has not been found and never will be, but the head minus the features, is buried on Century Boulevard between Western and Crenshaw. I feel it is my duty to dispose of the bodies as I do. It is God's will not to let them suffer. Signed, X. Oh, that is creepy. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of? What? Burke and Hare. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we never covered it because I feel like a lot of people have covered that before. And we try to like get it's on my list of... somewhere as a possibility, though, because it is real interesting. It. A, yeah, yeah, that story about like these dudes that like drugged people and killed them to bring them in as like cadavers to be mm -hmm. like 
studied and mm-hmm. dissected for science, but like for science. this is more deranged. <laughs> this is not like actual science. Well, and they did look around that area that's referenced in, in the letter and didn't find anything. Uh, and they mm-hmm. were convinced it was genuine. As time went on, the validity was called into question. Um, and most people think that it's not a legitimate letter. Oh, However, okay. oh, there has been a connection that some draw to a case that would happen in California uh, about 10 years after all of this. Okay. One we've covered before on Ghoulish Tendencies. Is this what? ringing a bell? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Another two-parter, too. Oh, shoot. My brain in California. Work. Okay. Now I need to go back and look at our history. What have we covered? We've done we've done 93 episodes. We've done 93 episodes. You want me to just tell you? Yes. Just I didn't warn so I you I was going to be asking, so that's a little unfair. That's okay. I have a, a goldfish memory it's as true. well. So. Uh, Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. Oh. the Black Dahlia. Duh. Okay. Yeah. Who was brutally murdered in Los Angeles, California in 1947. Her body severed at the waist, drained of blood. Sound a little familiar? Yeah, actually. Now, personally, I think it's a stretch. Um, Like, it's certainly not the first time uh, a body has been left like that. She still had the head. There was the whole thing with the mouth. There's. It was 10 years after the fact. But... I always do find it interesting when connections like this are made between some notorious cases. Yeah, I do too. So we are now up to May 3rd of 1940. A rail yard in McKee Rocks, Pennsylvania, reported a gruesome sight. In three separate cars, the decapitated bodies of three different men were found in abandoned boxcars. They'd been dead for about two months, was suggested they had been killed, most likely in Youngstown, um, because that was where the cars were from. One of the victims was identified as James Nicholson, a 29-year-old drifter who had a record for burglary, trespassing, and homosexuality. Of the victims, he was also the one that strangely had the phrase Nazi carved into his chest. Oi. To this day, it is debated as to whether or not these victims are credited to the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. Um, Personally, I kind of lean towards no. I think leaving bodies... um, in abandoned boxcars doesn't really fit with what he did. Uh, Like disturbing. Absolutely. But for me, it's a stretch. One of the detectives on the case really thought this was connected. So that was part of why it tends to get brought up. Um, And that's, I mean, that's just it. There's been a lot of other bodies through the years and this makes some people ask, could this have been not one killer, but multiple? Either working together or using the Cleveland murders to try and cover up their own misdeeds, which would not be the first time a copycat murder was used like this. But really, after this point, things drop off. There's been a handful of suspects that would crop up. Only two are really spoken of today. One was a bricklayer who lived in the area with connections to some of the victims. And the only person ever officially arrested for the crimes 
Note that I said officially. Ah, there's unofficial arrests. The other? A doctor. Oh. So police first became aware of a man in late 1938 who may have been connected to Flo and Anthony, who are two of our victims, are only two who have officially been identified. As they investigated, they found out that Flo and Rose, our other victim who was unofficially identified, again, were in a bunch of the same circles and were regulars at the same bar, one that Edward and Drossy also frequented, which led police to a man named Frank Dolezal, who knew Flo possessed a large amount of butcher knives that he used to use to threaten people when he was annoyed, which, to be fair, who hasn't done that once or twice? <laughs> also, I love that detail. <laughs> oh, right. Isn't that great? Uh, Frank was 52, worked as a bricklayer currently, but at one time had worked in a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Despite the whole butcher knife situation, though, he was described as being gentle and kind of a loner. Um, to look at him, he was not somebody... Like, he didn't have a lot of money. He lived in Kingsbury Run. May or may not have been homosexual. Doesn't really fit the profile. He fits the victim's profile more than he fits one of the killers. That's interesting. Frank was arrested on July 5th of 1939. What happened during that interrogation was absolutely appalling. He was questioned for two days. He was denied food and rest. He admitted he knew Flo, and even that he drank with her. And he'd even drank with her the night she was murdered. But he didn't do it. Okay. After more interrogation, he was beaten, and then he finally confessed. Can you sense the quotes I'm putting around the word confessed? Yes. They're air quotes coming out of your mouth. Aggressive. Aggressive air quotes. In his confession, he said Flo and him were drinking. She attacked him with a knife. He hit her. She fell and hit her head, and it killed her. He panicked. He cut up her body and disposed of it. So police are like, oh, yeah. This is what happened. Let's connect things. Yes, we're making connections. Even though they didn't really find anything. Like, anything they found in his home, they were trying to connect. If there was blood stains, oh, it's a victim. Sure. Well, they didn't have, like, anything, so no, they I don't blame them for, like, trying really except, hard. But except it's they not... did it at the, well, just wait. Okay. A reporter who interviewed Dolezal the day after his confession would describe him as being, quote, on the verge of hysteria. His eyes are filled with fear, and he moves his head from side to side in quick, nervous jerks. Now he looks at all men as if they were his enemies. Each stranger who enters his cell brings a threat to his safety. If he hadn't said so, you would find it rather preposterous to believe that he could turn his humble home into a slaughterhouse. You know who else finds this preposterous? Who? This bitch. (laughs) This guy. It's me. I'm the bitch. All right. Um... Someone else who was not convinced was Detective Peter Marylou, who had been pointing out all the inconsistencies. For example, he confessed he dumped Flo's head into Lake Erie. However, during the time she was killed, Lake Erie was frozen. So not so easy to toss a head in there. Not so easy. He would actually write, quote, This was my first experience where a man is making a confession to a murder or any other serious crime and does not know the details of the crime which he has alleged to have committed. Uh, That says quite a bit. Yeah. And as days went by and more holes are being poked in his alleged confession... 
Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Rumors are also coming out that he had recanted and that he'd only confessed because of police misconduct. Which... Rep- Which happened like this is not an isolated incident. This has happened. And reporters are noting bruises on his face and his overall day's condition saying, quote, they kept at me until I got crazy. They beat me up. He would say that. On August 24th of 1939, Frank Dolezal was found hanging from a rope made out of rags in his cell. But the details of his hanging were what we're going to go ahead and call shady. Shady shit? Shady shit. For starters, Dolezal hung himself from a hook that was five foot seven off the ground. He himself, five foot eight. Wait, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Think about that for a second. So he was probably like murdered and then hung up to make, look, make it look like he killed he himself? He was an inch taller than where he hung himself. That's... That means his feet were touching the ground. Yes. There's more. But wait, there's more. The guard said they'd only been away from the post for a few minutes when asphyxiation would have taken 12 to 15 minutes. The doctor who looked at the body about a half hour later found the body to be cold. Oh. Takes longer than 30 minutes for a body to get cold. For a body to get cold. The noose was made of rags, but the doctor observed marks around his neck that were very deep as though he had been um, like like a ligature, like a proper ligature was used. Not rags. Rags don't leave marks like that, even if used in this manner. His autopsy would later show he had six broken ribs, three on each side. You know what doesn't cause broken ribs? Hanging yourself. Hanging yourself. Uh, an inquest was held. Ultimately, they found it was suicide. What? But they did acknowledge the sheriff's office had beaten him. I'm like, oh, well, that's great. That's nice. That's so messed up. That sucks. I got so angry reading this part. Um, so he was, I mean, I don't think there's a question in anyone's mind he was innocent. And kind of became a victim. Kind of became a victim by proxy. Yeah. So this is maddening and upsetting. Let's talk about our other suspects. The doctor. The one that Elliot Ness believed to his dying day was the man responsible for the crimes. A doctor who first came up around Edward Androssi's murder. Uh, This doctor had an alibi, or at least seemed he had an alibi. He was spending time at a home for alcohol treatment. He was dismissed as a suspect. However, while looking at another lead, one of the investigators decided to give the home a visit and realized that the doctor, who had admitted himself for treatment, was allowed to sign himself out whenever he wanted. Oh, that's not good. Not good. Uh, Detective Cowles found someone at the facility, Alex Arkaki. Arkaki? Arkiki. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Who not only knew the doctor, but was convinced he was the butcher as well. A man named Dr. Francis Edward Sweeney. But who is Dr. Sweeney? I don't know. You tell me. Born May 5th of 1894 and growing up in a family full of tragedy. Uh, He was... 
an Irish immigrant. His family were Irish immigrants. He grew up near Kingsbury Run. Look at that. He knew the area. Siblings died when he was young. His mother died of heart failure when he was 9 or 10. I saw both listed. Uh, By about 1910, when Sweeney was 16 years old, his father was confined to the hospital with tuberculosis, dying in the state mental hospital in 1923 of apoplexy. Sweeney was a very intelligent man. By 1917, he joined the Army. He went to war in Europe. He served for two years in medical supply and, according to some accounts, took part in a number of amputations that were needed to be done. Uh Uh-oh. He returned from war altered. It's a little unclear if there was a specific incident that happened, uh, if it was a head injury or if he was maybe impacted by gas. That was a, a thing that happened a lot in World War I. He attended medical school. He married a nurse in 1927, graduated medical school a year later in 1928. They would have two boys and resided in Cleveland. But by 1929, he started showing signs of distress, psychosis, coped by drinking heavily. According to the book Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher by Max Allen Collins and A. Brad Schwartz, which was the second book hugely helpful in my research, He was drinking so much, he actually damaged the nerve endings in his hands and feet. Dang. I didn't know you could do that. We learned something new today. The more you know. (laughs) Uh, But it, it led to excruciating pain. His marriage is crumbling. His wife would say he has upon many occasions humiliated her before her friends and has been abusive to her and their children, both physically and mentally. She would petition to have him committed each time he would be discharged after the examination. Each of these stays would be at Cleveland City Hospital, where Edward and Drossy, one of the few Ripper victims we have identified, would sometimes work as an orderly. Oh, no. It is not uncommon for serial killers... To kill someone familiar to them among their first kills. Sweeney had a medical practice next to a funeral parlor where the undertaker would also apparently allow Sweeney to operate on unclaimed bodies. Oh, no. Allegedly. Allegedly. The way he was operating the bodies and cutting them up would mimic the way the butcher's victims would be dismembered. Do you remember when I asked you to press save? Embalming. Embalming. Those two victims found near Elliot Ness's office. One had been embalmed, and one theory is... One theory is... He hadn't necessarily killed that victim. He took an unclaimed body and left it after performing experiments on it. Oh, that would make sense? Yeah. In the fall of 1934, his wife sued for divorce, citing Sweeney's escalating drinking and abusive behavior. This is close to the time the Lady of the Lake, our possible first victim, was discovered. And this is significant because it is not uncommon for there to be some kind of incident in someone's personal life that leads to them finally crossing over and and doing that first kill. Yeah. 
Now, this is around the time Alex Arkaki, Arkaki, I'm so sorry, Alex, uh, <laughs> first met Dr. Sweeney in a bar where the doctor offered to buy him a drink. Dr. Sweeney asked a lot of personal questions about his life, where he lived, and Alex became convinced that he was looking for sex and he wasn't interested, so he left. Records of where Sweeney was the next couple of years or what exactly he was doing are a little shaky. Um... He would meet Alex Arkeki again a few years later at the home for, for drinking. Uh, they struck up kind of an arrangement where Alex would get him booze and the doctor would give him prescription drugs. So you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Cocktails. Multiple He times. noted that Dr. Sweeney would sometimes be gone for multiple days and shortly after there would be a new report of a murder victim. Okay. We know in the start of 1938, someone tried to have him committed uh, because he was suffering severe delusions. He was convinced federal men were after him. Oh, no. Now, to be fair, he wasn't entirely wrong. I was going to say, if it was him. The doctor referred to as Dr. X in notes was Dr. Sweeney. And he was put under heavy surveillance because he was back on their radar. And Sweeney knew it because he would evade the detectives who were following him and then pop up saying, quote, if we're going to be together so often, we might as well be acquainted. Oh, dang. <laughs> like, it's both funny and creepy. And ballsy. Uh, he'd send Cowell's stuff to put in his file. Like the detective, he would send them stuff. Those are also, but that's not the actions of a person who's well. I'm sorry. No. But also, do you know what none of this is? What? Evidence. 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 Yeah. And because of Sweeney's high profile family and the fact that he was the cousin of one of Ness's political rivals, Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, that made bringing him officially in for questioning... Real tricky, especially without any actual evidence. Evidence. Which led Elliot Ness to do something risky, probably illegal. Detain him in a hotel room off the records. Oh, that's why you said off record arrest? Mm hmm. Okay. And again, Ness wasn't even using Sweeney's name. It wasn't any of the notes where he was Dr. X. And in the hotel, he, I don't, this is, I'm sorry. He used the alias Gaylord Suntime. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I need, I'm sorry, I need a quick moment of silence to appreciate that name. Chef's kiss. Wait, what is it? Can you say it again? Gaylord Suntime. Suntime? Suntime, like Sondheim oh. with a U. Okay, well, I like Gaylord Sundime better. Um, no, Sundime. Sundime, like Sondheim okay. with a U. That's what I keep thinking. Sondheim, except not. It's Sondheim's bastard cousin. What a uh, so they picked him up sometime in May of 1938. He didn't really object. He was apparently incredibly drunk. Oh, jeez. Um, one of the, the people who took... Uh, part in the interrogation he said Dr. Sweeney was so intoxicated and high when picked up it took three days for him to come down oh my god his behavior was wildly unpredictable according to James Bedall's book he was grilled for about eight hours a day for the first week he was being held dang 
Now, Ness would bring in Dr. Leonard Keeler, who was inventor of the Keeler polygraph, which was supposedly the most accurate of the early polygraph machines. Low bar. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have opinions. <laughs> Dr. Keeler personally conducted the test on Dr. Sweeney. And by Dr. Keeler's own admission, the machine was not really a whole lot of use on, quote, small children, morons, unethical savages, or insane persons. What a lineup. He's at least he's at least one of those, if not all. Oh yeah. <laughs> How many boxes can we check? As many as possible. Um as Keeler started the test, he couldn't even get out his first question about Sweeney's name before Sweeney burst out with a laugh. Gaylord Sundime! <laughs> oh my god. I mean, to be fair, same. I would do that as well. I would do that as well. Um, after the test was done, according to one of the witnesses at the scene, quote, when Keeler got through... He said he was the man, no question about it. I may as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything else. And Sweeney now stopped cooperating. Oh, okay. And was actively asking for an attorney. Uh-oh. So Ness confronts Sweeney and says, I think you killed those people. Sweeney's response you think? Prove it. Oh! Balls of steel. Dang. But That's also... so rough. I mean... Fair? He has a there. Because, okay. Outside of the polygraph, which hadn't even been administered in an official capacity, none of this could be admitted to court. There's no proof. There's no evidence. And so Ness has to let, let him go. Oh, that's so funny. He keeps some eyes on him, but. And about a week after, he uh, conducted his raids on the hobo jungles. Hmm. Now, Detective Mary Lou would check in on Sweeney again in February of 1940, but unlike Ness, Mary Lou did not believe Sweeney was the butcher. Uh, he would say. That Sweeney is not the type of person who would associate with perverts or other low type of characters. He is inclined to be delicate. Even though he weighs 220 pounds, he is rather fat and soft and could not, in our opinion, fit into the type of person who would mix with the transients around the railroad tracks and swamps. Because of his body type? It's, I think Mary Lou, Mary Lou was so convinced that the butcher was was still out there in another form that I think it kind of blinded him to a lot of what was right in front of him. Uh, Sweeney was not done with Ness. He started sending Ness bizarre postcards and letters, a handful of which have survived today. Um, be postcards like a picture of a tree with the words dig here on it. And then he'd draw an X. Oh, my God. And he'd send Ness details of the murders that Ness swore only the killer could know. But again, uh, almost none of these postcards have survived. You can find some pictures of a few of them online. They're almost incomprehensible. Like, trying to read them mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Now, sometime after July of 1940, he was admitted to a mental hospital. Allegedly. Allegedly. 
Ness was responsible for this. The story seems to indicate he went to some of Sweeney's family, possibly the Congressman Sweeney, um, and possibly with this theory that he was the butcher with the hopes of getting Sweeney off the streets in a kind of, I can't arrest him, but this is, this man is unwell and shouldn't be out in public. I mean, that's also very fair. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it would be at the hospital. He would get his diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. (laughs) At least they, uh, gave him that. Now, Ness died in 1957. Sweeney died in 1964. Because Sweeney was never a formal suspect, it's hard to say uh, what other evidence Ness may have, like, privately gathered. Um, But Sweeney was absolutely his make for the butcher and remains the prime suspect among many who have studied the case. There's a small handful of other suspects on the table, but... um, Probably the most frustrating thing is how little actual evidence evidence there was. There's few witness accounts, nothing physical, nothing that was detectable at the time. I mean, again, it's hard to say by today's standards what we could have done with one of these crime scenes. Um, but it's it's speculation, and speculation is not evidence. Evidence. Today, the official victim count lies uh, twelve to thirteen with. If you include the Lady of the Lake, going as high as 20 if we include the Newcastle murders and some others. But again, who's to say there weren't more or that there wasn't more than one killer? It's a case that will probably never really be fully solved, which is what makes it so frustrating. Like this many decades after the fact, and I know we've made all this progress on identifying victims in cold cases, but these are not the victims we usually identify. No. These are not victims anyone is digging the graves up of to find a DNA sample for. It's very possible we don't even know where half these victims have been buried. They were probably buried in in potter's fields and graves. Uh, And I I don't know. For me, I'm someone who likes answers. You know this. Mm -hmm. I I like facts. I like answers. I like knowing things. If I don't know the answer to something, I want to look it up. I want to learn more about it. Unsolved cases like this drive me absolutely crazy because... Uh, even if the case wasn't solved, I, I like having a person I can point to and be like, okay. And, um, at this point, I mean, yeah, we've got Sweeney, sure. But all of the original files are missing, probably destroyed. It's unlikely there's going to be a whole lot of new answers or evidence. So we have a, a really frustrating mystery which are maybe my my least favorite. <laughs> and I'm saying this hoping. I feel like, you know, we talked about Lady of the Dunes and she was identified. Maybe maybe I'm summoning some energy in the universe and hoping that we'll get some new answers on this case by talking about it. Um, I mentioned a couple great books that I read. There's a few others, but but those two are the ones I specifically read. So if you're interested in learning more about the case, those are both excellent resources. There's other books available. Um but that is the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Um, what do you think, Gabby? Um, I think Sweeney is pretty uh, pr- pretty dead set. Like that, that all arrows point to that. But also, that's what you were able to find. And I feel like yeah. there's 
that's the other thing is like the if so much is not accessible now, like what was accessible then to a degree, right? Especially with like all these people not being able to be tracked down in certain ways within the right. families and stuff. But I think like I was going to say the pol- the political aspect of it is extra frustrating yeah. because I feel like that's also relevant today. Oh, absolutely. Um, where and, and I think throughout time, right? Like throughout decades, we've seen stuff like this where anything that has any kind of political inkling attached to it is not treated the same way as any other case that doesn't have that. It's very different. And so it's it's very different. It's You're just right. frustrating to see that like I wonder had that not been a thing, had there been no like political connection. Would it have been treated differently? But it also wouldn't have given any more evidence. Well, and I think that's just it, that that even if they felt like they could bring him in for questioning, they they had zero evidence. And I sometimes get hung up on, you know, I, I think Sweeney is a very likely suspect. I think he's a great suspect. He's probably the best one we have. Am I 100% convinced it was him? I'm not. And part of that the narrative has been so shaped by Elliot Ness's he was dead set this is the guy no question in my mind and that's fabulous and and there's a very real possibility he was but in my experience anytime you have someone so doggedly convinced their suspects the right person they'll ignore other things they'll twist facts to get what they want and again I think if we can agree on anything, it's that Sweeney was not a well man. So that means taking everything he even said with a grain of salt. That's true. Yeah, that's fair. Like you have people who confess to murders they never committed because either they really think they did it or because they're they think it's funny or because I mean, uh, or they're out of it, like mentally or they're, unstable. Or they're mentally unstable. They're mentally ill. And um. There's a lot of stuff lined up that that points to, yep, this could add. There's a lot of circumstantial things, but that's all it is. And um, I just, you know, one man died in prison because the police so desperately wanted him to be the killer when he wasn't. That's so sad. So I'm not discounting anything against Sweeney. I just want to approach it with enough of an open mind that I'm also not discounting evidence that could point in a different direction. Well, that's, that's a very a logical way to look at it too. So I, I, I can see your perspective on that. If anything, I feel like, I mean, first of all, this is very good research. So good job on this. Thank but you. one of the things I, I wanted to point out that I know you love doing is finding a topic that will frustrate the shit out of you and me and our listeners. So I yep. wanted to congratulate you on like fully getting me to that level of frustration with this particular You're topic. <laughs> because it's so it is frustrating. Like not mm. only are these people marginalized and we don't know who they are, but then the person who did it ha- like left nothing and then yeah. the one that we think could have possibly done it it's too heavily relied on by like one person and they're unstable. Like there's yeah. so much uncertainty like throughout this entire thing. Mm-hmm. And that makes it 
it's not like one person's fault that it is that way either. It's no, it very just, much the circumstance of the whole thing. The lack of identification of the victims, I think, is maybe personally the thing that um, is it makes me just really, really sad. Um, and again, we we we've covered the Lady of the Dunes. We've covered uh, cases where where someone's not been identified and. Seeing the other side of it, seeing when it does happen and relief that it brings to the family, even decades, decades afterwards, the answers it brings. And, and it's it's horrible to think that there's people who were missing loved ones and never knew what happened and that these people were, were horribly murdered, not just killed, but brutalized and we can't even acknowledge them and say their names out loud. And you know, you know how I feel about that too. I mean, we yeah. saw that with Pedro Lopez with how upset I got yeah. that I, uh, I I couldn't name more of the victims. I think the very least we can do when we talk about these cases and when we're covering these killers is to be able to acknowledge the victims and share whatever we can about them. And when we can't, because we don't know who they are, oh, that just it it kills me. Um. Because I want to, I want to be able to, to hold something that says, uh, we, we acknowledge you. We, we are still talking about you and people loved you and people missed you. And I don't know, I could go on. Sorry. I just, no, it's, it's valid because I feel like this goes back to what we talk about a lot when it comes to true crime in general yeah. of like what is focused on and it's always yes. focused on the killer mm-hmm. and glamorizing the killer like mm-hmm. Dahmer is a great example mm-hmm. of that with the show that just came out recently and like yeah. how that whole thing is portrayed versus like the victims and yeah. the aftermath versus yeah. like Ted Bundy you know what I mean like it's it's valid um, and I think it's important to see the other side of it and not just like be into true crime for the sake of like wanting to dissect serial killers, but like to understand that there are families that are affected and people that are affected by these crimes. Well, and I've said this before, but if you can name five serial killers and you can't name five victims of serial killers, then I think that's something you should change. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I like, again, we, we like talking about these cases, obviously it's why we, why we do what we do and why it's part of our podcast. Um, but the, the almost like fetishization of some of these killers and what they do and who they are, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's, we, we're going on a tangent, but I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> I think about, you know, it's kind of a running joke. I get things sent to me. If there's if there's a killer, if there's a murder, whatever, somebody sends me an article, sends me the Instagram, sends me the YouTube or the TikTok, whatever it is. My dad will send me articles. And this is, I love this so much. I find this the most charming thing. But there'll be some article about, you know, 10 brutal serial killers you've never heard of or some new horrible horror film coming out or whatever. My dad sends it to me saying, I think you'd like this. And it's adorable. It's so sweet. But, um... There's stuff we share when we like this with each other. And every so often I have somebody send me something that's like a a Dahmer t-shirt with some kind of horrible quote about eating. And like, there's the line for me. That's, that's, that's a line. That's a line. Um, I have all my lovely, my horror dresses, my skull dresses. I love, I love that. 
uh, one of the places I order on Etsy has like a serial killer dress that's just pictures of serial killers. And I'm like, nope, see, that's a step I personally do not want to take. That's the line. We're not glamorizing, but we're talking and we're looking at and we're sharing and I don't know. I'm sorry if I'm rambling again. No, it's, just, it's, uh, <laughs> it's relevant and like, I don't, I don't know if you've been to the Museum of Death. Have you been to the Museum of Death? I have not. Uh, I know you have. I've been to two. <laughs> yeah. I, I know of them, obviously. I know it's inside. I have my own fairly strong opinions it's about wild. them. It's wild. Yeah. It's, and it's, in, because it's interesting. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. it just depends on, like, what your level of, like, capacity is for this kind of stuff, right? And, like, there's a Museum of Death in L.A., that's also owned by the same one in um, New Orleans, and I've been to both, and I had some wild vibes when I went into the one in L.A. to the point where I was nauseous, and when I stepped outside, I was fine. It was very yeah. weird. Yeah. But, like, there is some fetishization of mm-hmm. serial killers within that, but there's also, like, like John Wayne Gacy Jr.'s paintings of clowns, which, personally, I think that's kind of cool that they have one of his paintings. Like... But also, it doesn't, you know what I mean? I don't think that's necessarily glamorizing anything. I just think it's like an artifact. And so oh, sure. it yeah, just depends absolutely. on like what, on what you're looking at. But I think at the end of the day, like looking at really gruesome crime scenes and like dehumanizing a victim mm-hmm. is tough. Um, and it, it takes the humanity out of the situation sometimes too. So it just depends on how you look at it, but we could go down this tangent like forever but, and ever. Uh, but I will say, we talk a little bit about with our humor cause we'll make horribly dark jokes, but True. we, Guilty. <laughs> but we draw a line of if I'm going to make a horrible joke or a tasteless joke, it's going to be at the killer's expense. Yeah. Not the victim, not the victim. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, this is almost its own topic or round table, but, uh, uh, I just, um, we, we walk a fine line and, and it's not a perfect line at all. The, any of us that do this kind of coverage, this kind of writing, this kind of, you know, we, we do our best. We try to serve the people and, and are probably sometimes more successful than others, but, um, but cases like this get to me. Yeah. It's hard for it not to, in my opinion. Like, I mm-hmm. think that's why I was saying it's so frustrating. Because, yeah. like, it really hits a, a nerve mm-hmm. where Absolutely. there's so much that isn't able to be known or done. Mm-hmm. And it's, we just want resolve. It's like why mm-hmm. I get so frustrated when I watch Unsolved Mysteries when there's no, it's literally when called Unsolved. <laughs> It's in the title, Gabby. <laughs> and then I get it mad at the end, like, wait, what happens? <laughs> no, dude. It's called I always Unsolved Mystery. The update episodes they used to do were some of my favorite. Cause I loved knowing something had been solved. Yeah. That's all that's why I mean that's why we're doing update episodes. <laughs> it's true. Cause you wanna know. You wanna know. Yeah. But anyway, thanks for covering this. This was a good one. Two parter. Yeah. Two parter, baby. 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 And this brings us to Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Kim, what you watching? Uh, well, speaking of Ripper Killers, um, oh. I started watching, uh, first couple episodes are up on Shudder. 
the newest season of Slasher, which I believe I'd recommended the last season at one point. Slasher is an anthology series. Um, a little bit, I mean, it, kind of in the vein of American Horror Story in that it, it's each season is self-contained. Okay. Much lower budget. Much lower budget. Sure. Much more melodramatic. It's kind of like watching really dedicated regional theater. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's great. I love it. I think it's fun. They get some really good actors on it. The actors fully commit to at times what is some rather ridiculous material, but the show's fun. It's violent, it's brutal, and it's fun. And this current season uh is taking place because it's Canadian, so it takes place in Canada, but it's like turn of the century Canada. And there's some kind of ripper killer called the widow that's going around and killing rich men, which yay. Also, this uh, sounds like Adam's family. <laughs> Adam's values. Family? Sorry, Adam's family values. Oh, just because of the widow thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. No, w. very different. Trust me. <laughs> different. Not, not as fun. Uh, more blood. More blood. And okay. entrails. Lots of entrails. All right. Piles of entrails. Um, it's the show is is absolutely goes there in terms of the like there there's it's it's in the title slasher. They're all somehow slasher themed. Uh. I really enjoy the series. The first couple seasons were fine. The first couple seasons were super low rent, real silly. And Shudder took over the series. I think it was last season. And the the value's gone way up. Something that it took me till the end of episode two to realize is Eric McCormick. You know who Eric McCormick is? The name sounds familiar, but I can't Will place it. Will from Will and Grace. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's playing this, like, douchebag rich dude who's horrible. And I'm not kidding. I did not recognize him. And it was not until almost the ending of the second episode where I was, it was because his voice, I was like, I know his voice. Why do I know his voice? And I finally looked it up. It still didn't click. And I looked him up and almost like had a conniption. Like I just, it was, it was great. Um, But it's, it's fun. It's a good time. Again, if you want something kind of like silly, gory, it, it's 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 fun. It's very fun, and it, I I have a great respect for the actors. They they really give the material their all and really commit to it. And uh, yeah, it's just a really good time. Uh, I also watched. So uh, one of the theaters that I work at had recently done the um, high school version of Heather's the Musical, oh, yeah. and I'd gone down this this rabbit hole of Heather's the Musical, uh, and there is a recording of it on. Roku of the I think it's Broadway uh, Broadway or the London one I can't remember anyway it's it's the same way they filmed Hamilton like they filmed this live staging cool. of it and man I gotta say like if you're a musical theater person and you dig just like because you, have you seen Heather's the movie a long time ago I haven't seen it in a long time it's 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 kind of messed up when you think like it it in some ways has an age well because it's hella not PC at all but it's really dark, and and the Heather's musical is still very very dark and very funny. But the there's some stuff they kind of soften, um, particularly the romance. They kind of lean a little bit more into the romance than the movie does. But it's fun. The music real catchy. It's well filmed. Uh, so if if you need like a a 
kind of horror musical kick or just a really fun, messed up, dark 80s musical kick, check out Roku. You can watch it for free. Heather's the musical. Nice. Slasher Ripper is on uh, Shutter, And I think probably AMC Plus, but I don't know anyone who actually has AMC Plus. So you have, have AMC Plus. AMC Plus. <laughs> Why not just get Shutter? I don't know. I just have AMC Plus because of the whole uh, Anne Rice situation. Oh, see, and I have AMC because I have cable. So right. And that's why. actually, so I'm not going to talk about the um, Way- Mayfair Witches. I almost said Wayfair Witches. I'm tired. Was, we talked about that a yeah, while ago. Yeah, but it's not we? like yeah. Wayfair, like by Furniture Witches. It's yeah, Mayfair Witches. <laughs> um, did watch all of that. We're not going to talk about it because you already talked about it. But I've been continuing watching certain things that I've mentioned previously, specifically Mandalorian. I like brand. Mm. I randomly mentioned it on the last episode, but mm-hmm. the most recent episode was the most bonkers episode of Mandalorian I have ever seen because it had Lizzo, Jack oh, Black. Oh, yeah, Jack Black. It was all over Twitter. <laughs> and... <laughs> Doc Brown, man. Doc yeah. Brown, Christopher Lloyd. Christopher yeah. Lloyd. And Christopher Lloyd. Like all <laughs> the man the Mandalorian. DeLorean Mandalorian. <laughs> like it literally felt like a fever dream. It felt like a fever dream because like the costuming is very Star Wars, right? But like yeah. they're also on this like eclectic planet. And sure. uh Lizzo and Jack Black are the king and queen. And Lizzo and Grogu the baby are like BFFs and like hanging out and like loving each other and having a great time. And then (laughs) uh, Doc Brown is just like the bad guy. And it's just, they're all in the same spot, like interacting. And my brain was like, it couldn't handle it. It was going to like explode. (laughs) So um, yeah, the, the star power in this one episode, that doesn't happen very often in, Star Wars things like this or in just one episode. Usually it's like sporadic and thrown in one person in one episode in one season right. and another person. In, but like all in one, I just like, I couldn't even pay attention to what was happening like plot wise because of who was in <laughs> front of me. Um, but yeah, it was great. And so I still, I also love Pedro Pascal. So like I anything that Pedro he's Pascal. in, I'm, yeah, like, yes, please. Also the Esquire thing that just got released today of the Pedro Pascal images. Have you seen this yet? This is not really creepy critics corner, but holy, he knows what he's doing. I'm just going to say that. I'll let y'all look it up, but have fun. Enjoy. He absolutely knows, what, he knows he's what he's doing. He's making all of us just like speechless and blinking slowly you know like that's kind of where i'm at with that but um <laughs> speaking of being speechless i also have been watching love is blind the new <laughs> season that takes place in seattle which normally mm-hmm. i would not talk about trash tv on this but this is the most bonkers season of love is blind that i've ever seen and all of the episodes except the final episode are out right now and so some wild shit has happened Um, that we've never seen before in any of the other episodes. And it's so good, but so bad. And there's this one dude, Zach, who literally reminds me of, not Zach Bagans. This guy lives in Seattle. But um, obviously, it's just funny. I'm like, I wonder if we can recognize people or know anybody. But I didn't know anybody. I think I'm too old. But either way, Zach is just like, I'm convinced he's a serial killer. He reminds me of Ted Bundy. Like, he is a criminal attorney and, like, super creepy. And I'll just have to send you some, like, 
little tidbits of it so you don't have to watch it. But like for those of you that have watched it, you'll know what I'm talking about. What's nuts is the last episode's coming out Friday and they're doing a live reunion on Sunday. And with how insane this whole season has been, I cannot wait for this live reunion. So I'm very excited about that. We'll see uh, <laughs> how that goes. But um, that's what I've been watching. And also we're recording in an unusual way. Like we normally mm. record every other week. Mm-hmm. And due to travel for me next week, we're recording like week back to back. So I don't feel right. like I have as many things to talk about for Creepy Critics Corner this time. <laughs> but that's what I've been watching. Nothing creepy other than Zach from Love is Blind. Um, unintentionally creepy. But uh, having said that, thanks for listening, guys. And um, if you want to find us on the social meds, look up Ghoulish Tendencies, you will find us. If you'd like to support what we do, head on over to Patreon. Uh, If you'd like to see (laughs) what we look like when we're talking about all this stuff and the facial expressions and the uh, (laughs) outtakes and all the bloopers and then some fun conversations, sidebar conversations or like news updates or just weird shit that we talk about when we're not talking about this stuff. Like go on over to our Patreon. It's a good time. Um, Also, we appreciate you. And thank you, uh, Norma, for joining. Norma. That's Kim's mom. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Norma. Mm -hmm. Um, She's a patron now. She is a patron. Uh, And then if you, you know, don't want to contribute financially, but still want to say something nice, you can go over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a rating or review. So having said that, thank you for listening. And stay. stay.